Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Lindsay Thomas is the Chief Communications Director for the National Deer Association. I wanted to chat to Lindsay because of one specific thing, and that was demystifying this idea of culling whitetail deer. You've all been in deer camp where someone says, well, you can shoot this deer and you can shoot that deer because those are cull bucks. We're trying to increase the genetic potential of the herd. Well, the National Deer Association has put out three pieces of evidence, and here's number three that demystifies the idea of the cull buck and its contribution to changing the genetics of a whitetail herd all across the southeast. You really want to listen to this because it's just packed full with information and packed full with just something that will probably blow your mind if you are a deer manager and listening to someone else in terms of telling you what you should and should not be shooting to increase the quality of your deer herd. If you like this podcast, make sure you share it across all your social media platforms. Be sure to give us a review on Apple and Spotify. And number three, Give us a rating on Apple and Spotify. It helps all of our algorithms. But this is a good one, folks. And take notes because Lindsay just communicates it out. Enjoy. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name my is... Name. <laughs> Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. <laughs> Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Mm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. So, is it a fair statement to say that what we're about to talk about, number one, is pervasive, right? I'd say that, yeah. Okay. Number two is now through science has been demystified, i.e. it really is just a myth. There's no science to back up what people do. That's correct. Three, 
will you still have a job after this podcast, Lindsay? Oh yeah, absolutely. We've been <laughs> we've been fighting this myth and others like it for many years, and I've still got a job. So you know, I mean, when you when you are basing what you do on science, when you're basing the positions you take and what in terms of what's best for deer and what you tell hunters about how to manage deer when that's all based in science, you know, you sleep well at night and know that you've given people the best information you can. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not worried about my job. And, you know, when you said pervasive, <laughs> um, I can tell you that over time we hear less about this. We don't hear zero about it anymore, but I would say that oh, really? in my 30 year career, we hear less about culling than we used to. Lindsay Thomas, welcome to the Blood Origins Podcast. Have we done this before? I feel like we had talked about it like two years ago when we saw each other and then it just fizzled out. But we didn't have good, juicy stuff to talk about. Now we have juicy stuff to talk about. Oh, that's, yeah, that's right. No, this is my first time on Blood Origins. <laughs> Popping your cherry. I'm excited. I'm proud of it. <laughs> um, well, welcome. Give everybody uh, in the, an idea who you are, what you do, who you work for. I'm the Chief Communications Officer for the National Deer Association. We are the leading nonprofit conservation organization standing for deer and deer hunters. And, and I would emphasize wild deer when I say that. NDA used to be QDMA, right? That's correct. We were the Quality Deer Management Association for many years. And then in 2020, reorganized, merged with uh, the National Deer Alliance to bring aboard their policy and advocacy power into what we were doing and essentially just put everything both groups did well under one roof. And now we are the National Deer Association. And you drug the freaking old school crew kicking and screaming into the new century. Kip Adams is still around. Matt Ross is still around. <laughs> That's right. The old dogs came with us. Uh, we decided to keep them. <laughs> yeah. oh, love both of them. Love both of them. They're great. I tell you, I've got a great team at NDA. I really do. It's uh, been that way for a number of years, and I couldn't say any better things about the entire team that I work with here. We're a fairly small group, but efficient, effective, passionate, all of that. No, 100%. Absolutely. So today, we're going to tackle, as we sort of set up the podcast, is a, is a myth, which is the idea, and people, and I'm surprised that you actually said that, that you're seeing it less and less and less, because every deer camp that I go to, there's still very much a, you know, if you see a cull buck, kill it. And the myth here that we're about to discuss is there's no such, well, there is a thing called a cull buck because any buck could be a cull in your own eyes, right? In whatever you're deeming. But the, the, the idea behind culling certain bucks is the idea that you are then removing inferior genetics out of the population and thus improving your deerhood, improving trophy quality. Let me not say trophy, increasing antler size, antler mass, and thus bigger animals, mature males specifically, on your deer farm over time. And Lindsay, you're about to say that's not true. No, it's not. Not when you talk about culling for genetic improvement. Like you said, cull could be used in a lot of context here, but specifically when 
we talk about this and, and, you know, you contacted me after my recent article on some new research and I was specific and careful to say, we were talking about the genetic culba, the idea, like you said, that you can remove a deer and improve the gene pool. This was something that deer hunters for years talked a lot about, assumed that you could affect the gene pool. Uh, they did use words like inferior, like you just did, that there was such a thing as an inferior deer from a genetic standpoint, and that if you removed him, you were improving future antler quality. Not necessarily antler quality of the standing crop of deer out there, but future deer not born yet. So that's what we're talking about here. That is the myth, that, that you can manage wild deer genetics. You can't. It's been tested multiple times, and there are just a stack of so many good reasons and things we know about whitetail biology that explain why we can't manage wild deer genetics. Okay, so let's start at the beginning, which is where did this start? Like, where do we know where the myth came from? I don't, there, you know, I can't point to a place in time or an article or anything like that that got this started. But I think you can assume people just adopted ideas that are accepted and are true in other experience of, experiences of ours. Well, logically, it makes sense, right? Logically. Well, it does. But if you think about breeding of domestic animals, look at what we've achieved. Everybody knows the things you can do, the power of selective breeding with domestic animals. You know, we took a wolf and made a golden retriever out of it in a few thousand years of selective breeding. And not to mention all the other different breeds that we, you know, created through that process. It's a powerful thing. We know how livestock managers use this process to create new breeds and improve them. So people just you know, accepted this idea that, hey, if you remove a buck, he's no longer breeding. And therefore, if he has some genetic quality that you think is inferior, those won't be passed along. You've affected their prevalence in the population. So yeah, there's so many examples around us of ways in which selective yeah. breeding does work that I think people just easily brought those in. And as we began to talk about deer management, improving deer populations, people just assumed that that would be part of it. But of course, as we point out, the biggest difference between, you know, breeding of domestic animals and hunting wild deer is control. With breeding of domestic animals, you control exactly which individuals breed which individuals. And in wild deer, you just can't do that. But Lindsay, what about a high fence? What about like, I've got a high fence, I've got 2,000 acres, 4,000 acres, 5,000 acres. It's a confined population. I have a confined number of deer in there and I can selectively decide and I can selectively put big antlered deer in there. Why, why is that not then a selective breeding circumstance in which then I should see the benefits of selective breeding when selective well, take? We focus we focus on wild deer. I don't spend a lot of time working on what people in, you know, deer farms and inside of high fences can do to manipulate deer genetics. We certainly know that at the extreme, deer farmers, deer breeders have learned to line breed and take bucks of a certain lineage, but also does of a certain lineage. They know the doe side of this and tinker with who breeds who and produce deer with bigger antlers, but they're under you know complete control of who's breeding who. Certainly with a high fence, you're controlling the genetic flow across the landscape that usually undermines our ability to, ma to manage wild deer genetics. Mm -hmm. And you're stopping outside genetics from coming in. 
you're preventing it from going out through yearling buck dispersal and all the other mechanisms that move genetics across the landscape with wild deer. But still, you know, unless you're a deer breeder and you know each deer's pedigree, you still got after population out there, the does carrying genetics, and you don't know what those are. But yeah. at the same time, yeah. a lot of the new research, what that has shown us, and this is what I wrote about recently, is that antlers aren't the signifier of genetics that we assume they are. They are not a reliable indicator of what that buck is going to produce in the future. Yeah, well, so let's just go through, I think it's a, it's a good point now, we've set it all up. Let's just go through the three big pieces of, of data, the three big studies that you talked about in this article. And, and for everyone's edification, this article um, that you wrote, where did you write it, Lindsay? Where can people find it? We'll, we'll, we'll link it in the show notes. It's on the NDA's website, the deerassociation.com. And it is the myth of culling bucks, essentially. Right. Strike three for the myth of the genetic call buck is the actual Strike title. three. Exactly. Strike three. So let's, do you want to talk about the third strike first? Do you want to talk about the first strike? We've got three strikes to talk about. Let's go through with the first one because that's how I wrote about it in the article. Um, okay. these, I've written about all three of these studies and the first one at the King Ranch was the first that I wrote about many years ago. Um, and it was the earliest attempt, big scientific experiment to see if culling actually worked. And this was at the King Ranch in Texas, famous location, 850,000 acre place. Dr. Mickey Ellickson was working on his PhD at the time, uh, involved with both the University of Georgia, but also Texas A&M Kingsville and the Caesar Clayburg Wildlife Research Institute there. And so multiple schools involved, you know, multiple PhD supervisors, lots of grad students and undergrads, but and different students got different papers and, and um, theses out of this, this study, but Mickey was one of the, the drivers of this. And uh, basically what they did was set up two areas, about 10,000 acres each. They culled bucks on one area. They didn't cull them on the other, the other being, of course, your control. <laughs> Both areas were similar in terms of habitat, management, deer population, buck-to-doe ratio, deer density, nutrition. Everything was the same as they could make it, and they were even adjacent, you know, fairly close to each other on the King Ranch, but they culled deer on one, and they, they did not cull on the other for eight years. And at the end of eight years, bottom line, there was no difference in the average antler score by age class of bucks on the two areas. The control bucks were just as you know, good in terms of antler quality as the, the bucks on the area they'd been culling for eight years. And when I say culling, um, you know, I got to go out there at one point uh, during this study and actually participate in, in some of the research one day, assist with that. Um, Come on, witness. Lizzie, participate in the research? Well, I actually did help. No, no, no. I'm, I'm being facetious here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I helped with the buck. You know, they've had this buck capture project going on at, at Texas A&M Kingsville for many, many years. Captured thousands of bucks yeah. and recaptured many of them. Collecting DNA, scoring antlers, um, aging the deer, etc., and it's contributed to many, many studies. But it, it, I, I participated in the buck capture. Literally watched them catch bucks with helicopters. Gotcha, gotcha, awesome. And this is something you could do in South Texas in the brush country. I actually got to get up in one of the helicopters at one point and, and witness from the air 
how this works. And, it, you know, in this brush country, you can't see very far. But once you're above ground in those helicopters, nothing can hide from you. Mm-hmm. And these cowboys in the helicopters net gun deer from mm-hmm. the air. It is amazing Catch- to see. Like it's how they incredible. Can put a, how they can put the helicopter down within, you know, yards of fence or shrub and whatnot. So these guys pile out. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, so they go around net gunning bucks. The grad students are on the ground in trucks, you know, coming to the deer, collecting the data, tagging, all that, releasing. So I got to participate in that. And and that's how they did the culling. This wasn't sport hunters going out there and being told, shoot yeah. certain deer. They were going in each year with helicopters, trying to capture literally every single buck on both places, both the control and the treatment area. But on the treatment area, any bucks they captured that met the culling criteria were sacrificed under scientific permits. So that's how they did this. This was not like me going out and deer hunting with a rifle. Hey. Oh, a completely, you know, an intensive and mechanical, technological, expensive method of doing this. And after eight years, they couldn't make it work, mm-hmm. at least in terms of showing better anglers on the bucks on the area they'd cull. So there's that one. And so let me ask and this. Was, so let's, let's talk. Let's, let's. I want to I want to piece out number one a little bit more. What were the conclusions from the majority of the science there? Did they make any conclusions about if there was no difference? I, what was driving diversity? What was the primary driver driving diversity in antler growth? Then, well, they faced the same issues that anybody who hunts wild deer is dealing with, and that is genetic flow across the landscape. Yearling buck dispersal, bucks leaving the area, taking their genetics elsewhere, bucks coming in from outside the area and bringing new genetics in. Um, You know, does also disperse to some level, not as much as bucks, but they're dispersing. You got behaviors like excursions that adult bucks do during the rut, Mm -hmm. leaving their home range and coming Mm -hmm. back after, you know, 24 to 48 hours. You've got this genetic flow across the landscape. So there's that. Also, there, what they now know is, essentially the low contribution of any given buck to the population across his lifetime. With whitetails breeding, the breeding ecology of whitetails, a lot of bucks are successful. There's no one buck or group of bucks that dominates. And so you've got this diverse breeding among all the bucks. Um, And then, of course, as they pointed out, you know, we're culling bucks out here. We're not culling does. Mm -hmm. You can't all those based on antlers. They're contributing half the antler genetics to the offspring, but you can't see what they're carrying uh, like you can with bucks, so you can't cull them. So there were, you know, all these factors they pointed to then. And this was before DNA. With Mickey's study, they did not collect DNA from the bucks. The second study they did, and that that brought in some more information. But uh, even then, they realized the holes in the bucket, so to speak, um, in terms of genetic flow and other limitations that prevented them from improving antler genetics on 10,000 acres um, with these high-intensity, inten- high high-tech methods. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's number one. Strike number one. Antlers did not change between two treatment groups. One treatment group was uh, actively culled for eight years, and the other was not, and there was no statistical differences between antlers in either population. Right. So probably, this I'm just surmising this, but probably what they heard from people in Texas and other places 
folks who believe in culling was, well, maybe you didn't get the right criteria for antlers. Your culling criteria maybe uh, wasn't right or wasn't intensive enough, whatever. Because another study actually began before Mickey finished his first study. And that one was on the Comanche Ranch, another large, you know, privately owned ranch in Texas. Um, with again with Caesar Clayburg out of Texas A&M Kingsville, uh-huh. Mississippi State was involved again. Multiple PhDs and and grad students uh, working on these projects. These weren't simple little scientific, you know, master's theses where a professor and a student sat around in an office and said, "What could I study uh-huh. for my master's uh-huh. degree?" These were major projects involving multiple PhD supervisors, big schools, lots of students. Over the years, you know, ultimately hundreds of undergrads and grads ended up having their hands in these studies. Yeah, large-scale, long-temporal timeframes. Right. So the Comanche Ranch was similar in that they set up treatment areas. They set up three. Again, one was a control, meaning an area where similar conditions as the others, the treatment areas, but you're not going to call the second was a moderate uh, calling area, and the third was intensive. So they set up two different criteria, one more moderate, the one more intensive. Um, and under intensive, they called every age class of buck. Every age class of buck had some kind of criteria and the criteria for which those bucks would be removed. In the moderate, uh, it was only three-year-old and older, threes, fours, and yeah. five-year-old bucks and up had criteria for being removed. And uh, again, at the end of seven years, uh, no results. No improvement, moderate, compared to the treatment area in terms of average age score uh, by age class among their bucks. Now, the intensive area was a little bit different story. It turned into a bit of a dumpster fire. They called bucks so hard under those intensive criteria that they essentially wiped out the buck population for all intensive purposes. Um, there weren't enough bucks going around left to breed the does each year when they came into estrus. So you ended up with does going into second cycles and third cycles. That led to lake-born fawns, which is itself a negative feedback mm-hmm. loop. In other words, that was so intensive that it uh, created additional problems that you don't want to begin with in deer management. So that obviously didn't work, but the moderate area, again, no difference in antler quality at the end of these years. Now, this time, as I told you, they had DNA. They collected DNA from all their bucks over all the years. They had a family tree, I think of 900 plus bucks. Jeez. Fathers, sons, for whom they had antler characteristics across years by age class. And this really revealed another hole in the bucket, another reason why this wasn't working. And it was that they saw, well, let me back up. They talked about breeding value. They established for each buck in their family tree what they called a breeding value. And what that means is simply, did they produce above average antlered fawns or did they produce below average antlered fawns down the line? So a buck with high breeding value would be the kind of buck you'd want to do, you know, do more breeding because they produced fawns down the line that grew up to be bucks that had high, above average antler size. What they saw was no correlation between a buck's antler size and his breeding value, not a strong correlation. So in other words, they had 
below average antlered bucks that produced above average antlered offspring and vice versa. What? Um, hold on, hold on. Yes. They had below average antlered bucks that, again, logically you would say the bigger antlered bucks are the ones that are going to be breeding, not even the little ones, right, the guys? Yet the little ones were breeding and the little ones were producing buck offspring that were bigger antlered than they were. That's right. And that blows out of the water the whole basis for this, that if you call a small antler, uh, an adult buck with below average antlers to prevent him from breeding, he might have been the buck that's producing your best deer down the line. Yeah. Right. They literally saw this. I had a picture in the story that I did on the Comanche Ranch study. And that, that uh, Donnie Drager sent me. Donnie was the wildlife biologist at Comanche Ranch that headed this up. And he here's the picture of the buck with the best breeding value in the whole study. He was a 120-inch, six-and-a-half-year-old. He was a cull buck. He was on the treatment area, so I'm, I'm sorry. That, and what kind of bucks was, was he? did he create? I forget the score, but in other words, in terms of how they ranked bucks in, for breeding value, this was the bug that had the highest breeding value in terms of producing good offspring down the line. And he himself was below average, fully mature, six and a half years old. He was 120 inches gross. So, you know. Yep. So the DMA story in number two tells you num- almost like inextricably that, look, this cultia that you have been calling a cultia. His entire life that you've been taking out because he's not good enough, he's too small, is actually the one that's producing the biggest bucks in your property year after year after year. That's right. How could you know that? There's no way you could know that. Now, this buck lived on the control area, so he wasn't cold. If he'd been on the treatment area, he would have been cold had he been captured because he met the criteria for uh, being called out. And, um, they, you know, that's how they knew that was that he was on this control area. So, yeah. Now that's not to say that every below average antler scoring buck produces above average scoring offspring. Well, that's the other thing is that you, you, we still haven't made like the, like this is definitive, right? That the coal bucks, the quote unquote, you know, you don't want to now flip it on its head to say, oh, the coal bucks are actually now the better breeders no. because it's a, it's a, it's a shit show, right? It's just a throw the dice in the air. Who knows what they're going to do? That's right. It's almost random because they did see bucks with above average antlers that did have high breeding value. They saw bucks with below average antlers that had low breeding value. The problem is they just saw the the reverses. They also saw bucks with above average antlers that had low breeding value. And like I said, the one buck with the highest breeding value was a below average antlered buck. So it's, in other words, there's no reliability in looking at antlers and determining what a buck is going to produce down the line. So therefore, you can't reliably cull and improve genetics. So that really, this, this added a new layer to the original, the King Ranch study that we didn't have before, the DNA showing that, okay, here's the problem. It is that what we always assumed, that if a buck had big antlers for his age, he was going to produce offspring like that. You can't assume that. So... That was, you know, another big nail in the coffin of this whole myth that we can manage genetics of wild deer. All right. So then we've got these two strikes and then comes strike number three, which actually has a little high fence component to it. It does. This is the Faith Ranch study. And 
this, as I said in the article, they sort of dispensed with culling and just said, let's just control as much as we can who breeds who. Um, they used two. Again, they set up a control. I want to I stop a minute and talk about how beautifully these studies were all designed from a scientific standpoint. They had these controls, and for folks that don't know, I mean, without a control in your scientific study, you, you can't say anything. You've got nothing. Right. And the control is simply used to um, limit the factors involved so that you can ask a question about a particular factor and, and narrow it down to that. So the control, of course, is the area that has deer and management the same as the treatment area, except the one thing you're not doing is you're not culling those deer. So they set up in the Faith Ranch study, two 1,100-acre enclosures, high-fence enclosures. One of them, they just enclosed local wild deer and let them do what they wanted in there. In the other one, they set up what in Texas is called a DMP pen, a Deer Management Program Permit pen. Now, this is something landowners in Texas can do legally. If you've got the land, the fencing, the, the money to do helicopter capture and all that, you can get a permit from Texas Parks and Wildlife to go out onto your private land with a helicopter and capture any buck you want and detain him for a short period of time in a breeding pen to breed does. Now, that's allowed under Texas regulations if you apply and get the permit. So that's what they did. This isn't quite deer breeding, but it's not far short of it. Because, again, they're not holding these animals captive at a farm and, you know, deter you know literally determining animal to animal who breeds who. They flew with, went out and captured some of their best bugs, put them inside two five-acre enclosures. It's a, it's a bit complex to explain. took me a bit in the article to explain it, but inside these two five-acre enclosures with one big buck and 15 does each, let them breed all those does, then, let, then turned them all out into that extra, the 1,100-acre fence. Each year, they came back and did the same thing. Flew out, captured big bucks, put them in the five acres with 15 does, let them breed, then turned them all loose in there. Again, into the 1,100-acre high fence. So you'd think, like you were saying before with this high fence, that it's going to control gene flow uh, yeah. and make this really work. And long story short, at the end of the study, after 15 years, the average difference in a mature buck's antler score in the one where they did the breeding control was only seven inches bigger than the 1,100-acre uh -huh. pen where they did nothing except the same nutrition regime, herd density management, et cetera. Uh, just random deer in a pen doing breeding who they wanted, et cetera. Only seven inches bigger after 15 years. So it worked. To some extent, it certainly did increase. You can't deny that, that the average buck in those intensive breeding pens was a little bigger than the one in the control. But you yeah, have yeah. to think about the fact that it took 15 years and untold thousands of dollars, not millions, on the part of this landowner to do that program and got, in the end, an average of seven inches bigger for your average mature buck. But the, the bigger point to to note is when you look at that control area, the 1100 acre pen where they didn't do intensive breeding control, the deer in there after 15 years were almost 20 inches bigger than the average mature buck in that part of South Texas that isn't on a nutrition program. Um, those deer in that 1100 acre pen were being fed. 
Well, the point to take home is that nutrition, better nutrition, did more for producing bigger antlers than the intensive breeding control added in the end. And again, with the DNA work, they, they saw the same thing that was seen at the Comanche Ranch, which is antlers ended up being an, an unreliable indicator of a buck's ability to produce high-scoring offspring. Um, and, it, and in this study, they went further and actually calculated the heritability percentage of various parts of a buck's rack. And that was, you know... Yeah, and there wasn't a single heritability trait that was over like 50%, right? Not a one, right. Um, I think time count might have been 49%. I'm sorry, time length. Hey. Time length was 49% heritable, and that was the high one. Most of them, overall growth score was 35% heritability to overall growth score. And what that means is when you look at a buck and he's got a high growth score, 65% of it is explained by nutrition and environment and only 35% by his antler genetics. So again, this just sort of added to what we learned at the Comanche Ranch that uh, antlers are not a reliable indicator of what a buck's going to produce in the future. And nutrition works. And it does more. It does more faster, sooner, and easier, of course. You know, folks like me that hunt private land and can't afford a helicopter and high fence can improve deer nutrition, and we can give bucks age. These things work. So that really was the kind of the, the takeaway for me from that study and, and all three compiling was they numerous tests. It didn't work. It certainly didn't provide a, a technique that the average deer hunter hunting recreationally in eastern U.S. is going to go out there and be able to apply and see measurable change. But we can improve nutrition and we can let bugs get some age and we can all do that relatively easily compared to trying to manage genetics and that works. Yeah, I was thinking about, you know, study number one and study number two in my brain. I was like, well, maybe they Maybe we just didn't give it enough time. You know, eight years is a phenomenally long study. Seven years is a phenomenally long study. Maybe it needs 15 to 20 years for it to really express itself. But then you've got freaking study number three that went 15 years. And yes, you did see a change. Um, and maybe, you know, as you said, they were both getting fed protein. They were both getting fed really good stuff. Um, there's certainly a, uh, you know, I think when you start looking at it on the ground, I think that, again, the myth may be perpetuated by the fact that you've got some sort of, some convolution of genetics and nutrition at the same time, right? Somebody is, is, is culling with no nutrition. Somebody is not culling with nutrition and they're like, well, what's going on? Or they are culling with nutrition, yet they're still seeing, you know, bigger antlers at the end of the day. And Buddy's going, well, that's, you're getting that because of, of culling. Mm. No, these studies say it's because of nutrition. We see that a lot. Um, and, you know, Donnie Drager, who did the Comanche Ranch study, told me uh, afterward that he said, you know, what this taught me was if you don't have a control and you tell people culling worked for you, it's an empty statement. It doesn't mean anything. We see this <laughs> often with deer hunters where it's, you know, it's confirmation bias. It is knowing what you want to find from your experiences and just pointing to that and saying that was it. 
they go out there, they improve habitat, plant food plots, shoot does to get deer density to the level it needs to be in balance with local nutrition. They protect young bucks to get them into some older age classes. They're doing deer management, but then they say, hey, we're, we're seeing a lot of bigger bucks now. It's got to be the culling. They point to the culling even though they're doing other things. They're doing habitat and nutrition improvement. They're giving bucks age. It's those things that are causing the change. It's not the culling. We know we can say that now after these studies. But people want to selectively say, ah, the culling worked. They want to believe in it. Um, I mean, heck. Well, it also gives them an opportunity also to let people, you know, I know we've discussed the science here, but I don't think, again, I think culling, the idea of culling, there's also an element of, Actually, two people said something to me when we posted the, the, the article on our Instagram. One was, it's a way for, to tell someone that you're not allowed to kill the big buck because we're under this culling program and that's what you're allowed to take. You know, kind of, so it's almost now, even though they may not know the science or they may not know that it doesn't work, it's still a mechanism by which you can limit what someone can take. Or the other is it's almost like a defensive posture when you do take an inferior buck and you are posting it in the social media age that we live in and you're like, oh, it was just a cull. It was just a cull. You know, uh, that's all I could take. They're, they're, you know, culling. Yes. And that's, I, I believe that explains a lot of it, honestly, is people mm. to shoot a a buck they just wanted to take that made them happy, but feeling like they've got to provide some management explanation. Uh, Qualify as if, it, yep. As if this was a chore. I just had to do this. This is part of deer management. This this buck had to go. I didn't, I'm not happy about it. It's work. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm hard at work over here on deer management. And, and that's, <laughs> it's, it's frustrating in a couple of ways for me. One that, that people, in doing that or overcomplicating deer management. It does not have to be this complicated. You don't have to cull deer. It's simpler than that. So they're they're leading other people who might be interested in deer management to think that, oh boy, this is complex. How do you know which deer to cull? But at the same time, it's frustrating for me that people feel they've got to have that kind of defense, that kind of shield against the others who might say things like, you shouldn't have shot that deer, or he'd have been a nice one next yeah. year, or I wouldn't have shot that deer. Well, that would have been the same. That would have been right, right? The, the second comment, he would have been better next year, Yes, based on what we've been talking about. You know, th- it bothers me that people judge others like that. When someone's taken a legal deer and they're happy with it, you know, that, that 100%. you would step in and judge somebody else's legal harvest. Illegal is a different matter, but a legal harvest that somebody's proud of, you know, we should say nothing but way to go. Uh-huh. Oh, it's the judging. It's the belittling um, of, you know, shaming, as some people call it, buck shaming, that has, in many cases, caused people to feel like they've got to provide some excuse for why they shot a deer they're happy with. He was a cull buck. He was inferior. Most of the time, he's just young, is all. He's not inferior. There's really no such thing as an inferior deer in my book. Um, mm-hmm. they're mostly just young 
but mm-hmm. they, people feel like they've got to say that to prevent others from saying you shouldn't have shot that deer. And that's, that's disappointing to me. I wish that wasn't the case. Lindsay, what about the whole spike theory? Um, you know, it's still, you know, there was this idea that a spike is not going to turn into a good deer. It has to be forked. That's being dismissed, I assume, not within these three studies, or maybe as a, you know, these three studies do point to that, but have there been any other studies tied to the idea of spike culling? Yes. And in fact, these, this same project, they call it the Buck Capture Project in Texas and was involved in all these studies we're talking about, going out every year in various properties around Texas, capturing bugs year after year after year. And they've, this has produced a ton of good information about a lot of different questions about deer management. And the spike thing is, is another one because, you know, they've captured spike bucks, tagged them, and many, you know, often what they're doing is injecting a pit tag as well that they can then find with a scanner down the road. So even if the ear tags come out or deer grows antlers and the, they don't recognize it or whatever, it doesn't matter, they scan these deer as they capture them each year and go, oh, this is deer number 23. And this quickly helped dispel the the idea that a spike remains a spike forever. Now, prior to that, that had been observed many times with captive deer that bucks that were spikes as yearlings did not remain spikes uh, throughout their life. But they also, through much of this study, were able to follow many of these spikes throughout their life and kind of track, you know, what did they achieve in terms of antlers? And the bottom line is that Yes, across their lifetime to their peak lifetime antler potential at five years old, six years old, somewhere in there, a spike buck is probably not going to catch up to a fork antlered yearling in terms of total growth score. But the point to me is that they almost do. And the fact, you know, that spike buck can still at maturity produce a deer that a lot of people would haul to the taxidermist. Mm-hmm. You know, the, when you get into the details, some people want to say, yeah, but he was, he was eight inches smaller on average than his fork horn cohort. And I'm like, well, that... Yeah, what is the difference? But, do, do you know offhand what the statistical difference was? I forget exactly. I don't have it right at hand, Robbie, um, and I could look it up. But it's, it's a small number of inches. It's just, but on average, it is lower. Spikes don't quite achieve what a fork antler dearling achieves in, in life. But the point is they're still getting to 130s and 140s. And again, antler scores that the majority of deer hunters in America would be absolutely pleased with. Mm-hmm. And so they are, the bottom line is spikes are not a genetic issue. They're a nutrition issue. And anywhere you hunt where you see a lot of spike bucks, that's, that can be fixed with nutrition, improved nutrition. It mm-hmm. also can be fixed with Dough harvest by balancing the buck to dough ratio to make sure all your does are bred on the first estrus cycle, and that prevents late births. Often, spikes are either late born and or you know poorly fed deer or both. And, you- and for those that don't know, Lindsay, the re- the reason why a second or third estrus cycle, second or third stage uh, born is not good for antler growth is. Because a, a doe will cycle again every 28 days if she's not bred on the first cycle, and that means her fawn is going to be born 28 days later, uh, or you know, as much as 60 days later if she cycles twice. And 
So those fawns are falling further and further, further out of the window of prime spring forage, both for the milk, the mother feeding on that forage and producing milk for the fawns, but also for the fawn to wean on. So there's a window of prime forage you're trying to hit in spring, and the later a fawn is born, the less time it has on that good forage before winter comes around again. Um, and so, yeah, you don't want late-born fawns. You want all your does bred on the first estrus cycle if you can get it, which simply comes from a, a balanced buck-to-doe ratio, you know, two does to, for, per buck or better. Um, and that ensures they all get bred. When, when there's mm -hmm. not as many bucks for does to go around, some get missed and they, they will cycle again. So both mm -hmm. of those things, inadequate nutrition and um, a skewed uh, sex ratio can lead to more spikes in the population. That's not a genetic problem. Those are problems you can fix with herd management. Yep, yep. Um, I don't know if I told you this, Lindsay, or you knew about this, but when I was a, prof when I was a professor at Mississippi State, I'm obviously the water quality guy in the wildlife fisheries department. Damaris is there. Strickland is there. And I went, I was, I was lucky enough to be asked, uh, invited to go deer hunting at Behind the Levee. Uh, which is, for everyone knowing, behind the levee in the Mississippi in Mississippi is where really big bucks grow. There's just really good, good deer hunting. And when I arrived on site, I was told that they were under a doe moratorium, and I was there to kill a doe. And I was like, "Oh, what?" <laughs> anyway, so I sat for two and a half days. I sat. I had five stancets, and I saw 160 deer. At a doe to buck ratio, I counted of six to one based on what I could see observationally. And I proceeded to write a deer management article that was published in Delta Wildlife around the second and third estrocyte. And how, if you're really interested in buck management, you want less does on your property because you want those small bucks to be grown, to be dropped in that high quality spring forage season so that they got the best started life instead of 60, 90 days later in which you're giving them the poorest started life. It published. I'm at my office doing my work and I get this knock on my door and it's Damaris. And he's holding the Delta Wildlife magazine. He was like, hey, I just want to let you know that was a really good deer article, but you're the water quality guy. <laughs> <laughs> stay in your lane Robbie <laughs> stay in your lane I was so pissed I was just so pissed yes. and I just needed to write something anyway it was a funny story Damaris I reckon he'd still remember it today but it was just I was such a I was a young assistant professor and here comes this big professor <laughs> he was like well written but son stay in your lane <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, the, the good thing about all of this is, like I said, deer management is not complicated. It is not hard. Take right time number, and nutrition, right? Take the right number of does so that your population is in balance with the habitat and the available nutrition. You know, if you're seeing a, a browse line in the woods, if food plots are eaten to the dirt, if you put a browse exclosure out there on the, the food plot and there's food in that and nothing outside of it, you don't have enough food for the deer you've got. You can do... Two things. One, shoot some does to reduce density, increase the amount of food to go around. And most of us need to do both in that situation. Um, beyond that, 
set an age goal for you that, that makes sense for the bucks you want to harvest, that's realistic for you and what your goals are. Shoot the bucks that achieve that age, pass the ones that don't. That's it. That's really it. You don't have to worry about, you know, culling just complicates this unnecessarily. Um, so I, I hear people talk about, you know, oh, that they don't have good hunting over there. It, it, it's just a lot of scrub bucks and trash bucks and whatnot. Most of the time, what scrub bucks means and what trash bucks means and what inferior deer means is young deer is what that means. Young bucks. And they need time and they need good nutrition and, and that's really it. Awesome. Lindsay, thank you, man. I knew it was going to be a good one. Um, we won't wait this long till the next one. Um, I think there is a, another couple of podcasts that we can that we can talk about in terms of some other um, controversial issues in the whitetail world, but we'll leave that till the next one. I'd love to, Robbie. I enjoy your show, and it's been an honor joining you. Well, that's it for today. Appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting. In Wild Country, rules were not created by man. Don't miss Wild Country, Wednesdays from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Primos. Speak the language. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery. Waypoint TV.